is up, everyone? I hope you're doing fantastically well today. This is Rafael Garcia here with Schwann Humes for episode number 168. Uh, what? No, wait, 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 nope. 167 <laughs> of the MMA ratings podcast. Actually, you know what? No, Schwann, I think I'm wrong. I may be wrong there. I am wrong. We are on episode 168. <laughs> so let me start that over. Hello, everyone. This is Raphael here at Shawan for episode 168 of the NBA Ratings Podcast. Not are you sure this time? I'm sure. I'm positive. I had, I had the wrong sheet open. So we're at episode 168. Um, it's crazy because I'm not doing anything during the day. And I, you know, I could get this shit set up and be 100% sure. And it doesn't happen. So, you know, there's that. One day I'm going to get the number right. I promise, one day. But before I can do that, man, we got quite a little bit to talk about today. We have a show last weekend. We have a show this weekend. We have a show just about all the weekends. So we're going to be talking about that too. But before we jump into that, Sean, why don't you let everybody know how you're feeling today? I'm doing all right. Just busy, man. I, I don't, my job ended when they had the COVID outbreak. But it seems like not having a job, I'm 10 times busier than I was when I actually have a job. So it's, it's crazy. I need to get a job so I can get a break. That's because you got kids, man, with the nest. They probably yeah. running you ragged. That is true. We got a lot of stuff to do. Always something. I bet, man. They probably got you running around here like, like nobody's business. Yeah. No, I tell people uh, kids are great. And I, I've said this before on the show. If you want to have kids and you want to have well-rounded, mature, like kids who can function in the world and actually be well-rounded as people, that takes a huge amount of investment, not just financially. Financially is actually the easiest because you can just pay and leave, but you got to pay and invest in time and attention and effort. It's like, like my dad used to tell me, he used to get mad at me because I just go to my room sometimes if I had a rough day, but now you got a kid. So I don't ever want to see you go into your room when you had a bad day. Question, who started that meme, fuck them kids? You know, I just I do not know, but it's very popular around my house. <laughs> exactly. See, <laughs> I wasn't gonna say it, but you said it first. So, let's go ahead and uh, let's start talking about some of the MMA action from this week, man. And I have UFC Vegas three, which was this past Saturday, and talk about four pieces of four different topics to talk about from that Saturday show. So we're gonna jump right in and talking about Curtis Blades first. He picks up a unanimous decision win over Alexander Volkov. Very Heavy wrestling, um, wrestling heavy game, taking Volkov down at will and dominating him in that position. He was working a little bit on his feet too, but we know that that's where Volkov does his best work. I think he won two of the rounds towards the end of the fight on his striking. He even took Blades down himself at one point. I, I just knew, I knew he was going to knock Blades out with like 30 seconds left. I knew something ridiculous like that was going to happen, but unfortunately it did not. So Blaze gets the win, and UFC President Dana White isn't too pleased with all the mess he's been talking. Now, if you remember, not only did Blaze say he was gonna he was gonna beat the shit out of um, Alexander Volkov, but he also made it clear where he stands in the fighter pay conversation, and he doesn't think fighters are like getting paid enough. So, in your eyes, Schwan, with his performance and his words leading into the fight on Saturday, did he just become public enemy number one amongst all the heavyweights? No, I don't think so. Um, before, he said he was going to wrestle him. He said, don't expect a stand-up war. He said, expect me to wrestle this guy. And to a degree, I mean, 
to a degree, I guess you could say when he was ragdolling and uh, banging Volkov around a little bit, I guess he did beat him up in the in the loosest sense of the word. But the fact of the matter is, he he told us we not expect a stand up war. He wasn't going to make it exciting. He was gonna he was gonna wrestle this guy. So that's what I expected. Um, fighters nowadays are just trying to do whatever they can to get attention. So I get him saying whatever he can to get people. And, and to be honest, it worked in his favor because. Let's say he let for for example he said he's going to beat the shit out of him he didn't so now Dana White's on his ass making comments which will in turn which will get fans on his ass and if fans love you or they hate you you're going to get spots because you draw attention it's when fans are kind of so so on you is when the problems arise so to that degree even if he is public enemy number one it's better to be public enemy number one than to just be a guy who's in the middle of the pack who fans don't really like or don't don't dislike you got to be one or the other. You got to be popular or you got to be disliked. That's the only way you make money in this sport. So I, I agree with you there. He, Curtis basically did what he said he was going to do. And his, I mean, in from a performance standpoint, I think he looked very solid. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk about whether or not he could beat either Daniel Cormier, Stipe Miocic, or Francis Ngannou. Out of those three, I think you have the best bet against Stipe out of, out of those three. I think he, he could um, hang with him in a wrestling space. I don't think he could out-wrestle um, Cormier, and we already seen what Ngannou does to him two times already, so there's that. In what situation, I personally think that Curtis Blades is probably the fourth man in this equation, fourth or fifth. And what I mean by that is you, we obviously have Cormier and Miocic getting ready for their trilogy fight. I think that's in August. And Ganu's pretty much been considered the number one contender after that. I really do have the feeling that uh, both Cormier and Stipe are going to retire after that fight in August. So what I think will happen is instead of Blades getting a vacated title shot between with him and Nganu, I think they're going to tap Jones and put him in that slot against Nganu, and they will gladly give him a title shot before they give Curtis Blades. What are your thoughts about that? Well, the biggest thing, the problem with Curtis Blades is he has, he's won, but he's won over guys that everybody else in that who's ahead of him has already beaten, with the exception of Cormier. Cormier hasn't beaten a whole lot of heavyweights, but he's beaten the guy who's beaten those guys. Stipe's beaten the same guys as Curtis Blades. Francis Ngannou's beating certain guys is Curtis Blades. The difference is they, in the, in the case of Ngannou, he's already beaten Curtis Blades, and in the case of Stipe, he's the champion. So those two already have a leg up on him. Curtis's biggest issue is um, one, he, he's not much of a draw, so that's that's also going to hurt his ability to leverage any 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 potential title fights in. And two, as as good as he's been, I don't necessarily know that Curtis Blades has improved. So I have some some concerns about whether they would even put him in a position like that unless somebody got hurt. Because from what I've seen of him, I don't know that he can compete. I mean, Stipe might be a little bit better of a matchup, but I don't know that he can compete with Stipe or Cormier, and he still hasn't found a way to beat Ngano. He's basically the same guy. He's a big, strong, athletic guy who can physically impose himself on you and wrestle you. But the thing is, if you have some, if you have some durability and some skill, or you have some athleticism and some skill, you can exploit the many holes in his game. He still can't transition from striking to wrestling very well. He's not particularly, he's not great at ground and pound if you've got defensive awareness and a little bit of durability. And as shown, once he gets tired, his skill set kind of looks even shakier. 
So I, I don't know how you could justify putting him in with anybody who's a, a media contender when, one, the only other guy who's not involved in the title fight right now who's a heavyweight is Nganu, who's already beaten him twice. And um, if even if Ngannou, even if somehow whoever wins from Stipe or, Stipe or Daniel, I don't know how you justify Blades fighting either one of those two before Nganu because he, he looked this bad against Volkov. And you could say that Nganu looked this bad against Stipe, but that's against one of the best heavyweight champion the UFC's ever had. That's who he looked bad against. Uh, Blades looked bad against Volkov, who lost to Derek Lewis, and really is more of a uh, maybe mid-tier heavyweight, I mean, for heavyweights. So, I mean, I, I don't see how he has ground to stand on. I don't see what his argument would be outside of maybe fans just hate him so much, maybe he can generate some heat and get a position like that. But as far as his odds and, and the rationality of, of matchmaking, I don't see why you put him in with either one of those guys. Um, that fight with Volkov, actually, to me, actually hurt his case. First three rounds, first two and a half rounds made his case. The last two and a half rounds hurt his case. Interesting. I, I can see how it hurt his case because he was clearly, he was clearly at a posi- at a point where he was gassed, and it was very it was very obvious if he's fighting someone who has well, takedown defense. In the better gas tank, he's going to be in trouble. Exactly. Exactly. He got tired. He got tired dominating. That's how bad it is. He was dominating a fight for three rounds and got tired. Now imagine what happens if that's a round apiece or it's a fifty-fifty fight. If you're gassing when when you're having your way, what do you do when you actually have to fight? When you got a guy who's fighting back and not letting you get to the spots you want. He got the positions he wants. He got the takedown he wants. He landed the shots he wanted. Couldn't finish and got tired. He got tired by dominating. That that's not a good look against when three guys ahead of you all can put can take advantage of you in certain positions, or if you put them in certain positions, they can work their way out of it very quickly. So if you're tired when you're winning a fight by essentially t- sweeping three rounds, you're and you're getting tired. What happens when you have to split? What do you have to do when you split three rounds? What if it's two rounds of one? What if you what if you're behind three rounds? He he hadn't shown any ability to to really finish. He didn't really show any ability to come back. He just basically hung on for a win. If that fight was six rounds, he loses. And I know that's a stupid saying, but the fact of the matter is he had nothing left. And he, he had dominated the first three rounds and then completely collapsed in the last two. Also, I wonder, what do you do with Blades next? Because he's sitting in the top, I think he's number three right now in the division. Let me check. Um, UFC.com rankings. Mr. Blades is in position number uh, three at heavyweight. What do you do with him next? Honestly, if I'm him, I just wait for the title fight to go through, and then I try to plead my case to get a title fight. I mean, he's gonna have to. He he might have to fight one more fight because Ngannou's in position for the next for the next title fight after this this one we got upcoming. But if I'm Blades, there's no who else is he gonna fight? He's already beat Overeem. He's beat GADS. Who's the other heavyweight? There's no other heavyweight ranked ahead of him that he need that he would beat that would help him. And given the performance he showed last time, this last time, I don't know if I want to take any chances. I think I just sit on the bench, sit on the shelf, and wait till my shot comes. Because no offense, in other weight classes, you might get overshadowed by a more recent dynamic win by another opponent. Heavyweight's different. <laughs> You're not gonna get overshadowed by a guy with a dynamic win over a highly ranked fighter. That doesn't happen. These wins are somewhat boring, often painstakingly lacking in, in strategy and technique in some cases. 
So I think he could sit on the shelf safely, keep maybe maybe to build on some skills, maybe work on some things, and and give himself the best shot at the title fight. Because right now him fighting isn't doing him any favors. He's already he's already number three. There's nowhere else for him to go except down. All the guys who want to fight him are guys beneath him, and if he loses them, he loses out on a title shot that he's he's never been closer to. So if I'm him, I just sit and wait. And if the UFC forces me to fight, I don't know who I want to fight. In fact, I just tell him I'm just going to wait and see. I mean, I, I don't see any benefit in him fighting anybody else at this stage. All right, so let's move on. Let's talk about that co-main event where Shane Burgos and Josh Emmett put on a show where it seemed like every shot that was landed would have killed a normal man. But here they are. They, they almost made it through. Uh, three rounds until Burgos ended up falling and getting um, finished. Actually, no, he didn't like it finished. He got dropped a couple times, but they did make it through three rounds. Uh, but Josh Emmett got the unanimous decision of victory there. He did so on a completely torn ACL and a partially torn MCL, which he messed up at the start of the first round early in the fight. So talk to me about that there, man. What, um, what are your thoughts about Josh Emmett and what is his ceiling at 145? Well, the thing with Josh Emmett, I, I've said this before, I said this on the show, and, and a lot of stuff, I, I, I reference the show previous to an event because I want people to be able to go back to it, listen to what I'm saying, to show that I'm not just picking wins and losers, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the finer points of the game and the layers of the game in each fighter. Josh Emmett is a great athlete. He's very strong, he's durable, uh, he seems to have good cardio, he's very explosive, he hits very hard, he's very fast. Josh Emmett is not a great fighter. He's a wrestler who doesn't use the wrestling in, in transition and combination with the other skills. Not really well. Not defensively, yeah, but offensively, he hasn't learned how to, how to basically put everything together. He's basically a one-note striker, winging power shot. Now he's gotten a little bit more craft and setups and fakes. He throws a little bit wider variety of skills, of, of techniques. But so much of his, his fighting ability is based on the fact that he can take punishment. He can walk through fire, and he can, he's can he got nuclear warheads attached to both of his hands. That's pretty much it. I haven't seen anything from him that shows tremendous technical growth offensively, and I haven't seen anything at all from him that shows defensive growth. People don't hit him a lot because they're fearful of the speed of his counters and the power of his counters. It's not because he's hard to hit, because he ain't. He's easy to hit. You hit him all night long. You just have to decide you want to. But the fact of the matter is he carries his power and speed whether it's three rounds or five rounds, he carries that power and speed at any moment. He can explode with a shot, put your lights out, turn a fight around and win. He did it against, obviously, he did it against um, Michael Johnson. In other fights, he just wiped guys out early in fights like he did against Ricardo Lamas. So to me, it's, if he stays the way he is, he's already hit his ceiling. He's, he can compete with the elite. He'll be a threat to beat some of them just, just based off his physical tools. Nothing to do technically. But considering all the injuries he went through, at his age, he's going to be out for, what, at least a year, maybe a year and a half, so he'll come back when he's 36, maybe 37, and he's, at this point, you're already physically declining. So even though he'll be a better athlete than a lot of guys, he's not going to be the peak athlete that he is right now, and that's assuming he recovers from the injuries 100%. And without his athleticism, he loses a step on his athleticism or half a step, then the same guy who, who has problems fighting guys and still find, and, and can find ways to win all of a sudden, that guy is not finding ways to win because he doesn't have that cheat code to make up for the many mistakes he makes. And because he has that athleticism, it lets him fight in a way that's very predictable as far as the combinations he uses, the, the shots he throws, 
and it makes him very predictable as far as his timing. He hits hard, but the reason he didn't knock out Burgos is simple. If you see the shot coming, you can roll with it. Maybe you can brace, you get it, you can clip, you get your arm up, there's something. The shots that knock you out are the shots you don't see coming. He's so explosive, he can hit you with a shot you don't see coming. But he's so predictable and he's so telegraphed with his shots, Burgos saw everything coming. So even though Burgos was getting hit hard, he could roll with them. He could kind of make, make him go through his hands a little bit, go through his forearms. He could get cussed with the shots instead of the shots landing square on his jaw. That's what was different. It wasn't that Emmett doesn't throw hard. It's just when you're going against a guy who is a striker and they can see the shots coming and they know what's coming, they can relax their body and they can roll with them, slip with them, brush them off or block them. And that's all he did. Even the clean shots were rolling off of Burgos. And, and um, Emmett didn't have the skills to switch up his combinations, nor did he have the good sense to just go to the body. People who went to the body the first two rounds, the fight doesn't even make it to the third round because he hits hard and there's no way to roll your body with body shots. You just got to take him. But Emmett didn't do that until the third round. He's getting outboxed and outworked the whole fight, and he does not resort to body punches until almost the third round. That's how bad his, his corner work was, and that's how bad his IQ is. And you would think a guy who's got that kind of athleticism, if you just have a halfway decent understanding of the game, you're unbeatable because guys just can't match you physically. But he doesn't, and he's going to be out for a year and a half maybe, and we don't know what he's going to look like coming back. So I think you've already seen the best of him, unless he's a, a cyborg, in which case – He'll level up. He'll maintain his athleticism and still be able to compete. But if he loses even a quarter of a step athletically, it's problems for him in this division. There's too many good athletes who also know how to fight technically. So you said a couple of different things there. Um, first, let's talk about the second half of the fight. Where you said he started going to the body more, and that's what helped him loosen up Shane enough there where he started dropping. I think the first time he dropped him was the end of the second round and he dropped him again in the third. Do you think any of that is chalked up to the injury he suffered early in the fight and did that limit what he was able to do? Or do you just think that that was not, it wasn't, a, it was more of a technical game plan type of issue? And then once you answer that, I want to talk about Shane Burgos too as well. Um, I, Team Alpha Male in general is, I've always said, they're good because they get high quality sparring. They got guys who are experienced. There's certain, certain things you can learn being with them that you can't learn other places. What they have problems in is the subtler aspects of the of mixed martial arts. That's why guys like TJ, guys like er, uh, Joseph Benavidez, even Cody Garbrandt now kind of expand their, their training because the general stuff Team Alpha Male has, it's the specific, skill-specific, and subtle aspects of the game. They don't. Now, you could, now there might have been something saying that um, he, got, he got injured, so then he resorted to body punches, you know, something of that nature. But the fact of the matter is, when you're, if you're a very big hitter, people can roll their body, they can duck, they can slip, they can parry, they can dance their way around, away from you with their head. They can lean, they can get the shoulder. There's a million ways to get away from headshots. It's not saying you're getting away from all of them, but there are things you can do. With body shots, there's no way to get away from them. The body shots, especially if you're half a step, a half a step faster than most people, how do you not punish the body? How are you not destroying the body? Even guys who like to take body shots can't take them from a heavy hitter who, who's that quick, at, that quick off the draw and hits that hard. So the fact that he didn't use it until after he was injured is even more damning of his IQ and his corner. I'm not saying they're terrible, but how do you not exploit the body? How do you not exploit body shots when you have one of the biggest hitters in division and the body is there to be hit all fight long? Burgos was coming forward. 
Yeah, come before Vita Jab. Yeah, fainting. Yeah, throwing a lot of volume, all that nonsense. The body was there all night. And as soon as he touched the body, the fight turned, and he started being super effective. Now imagine touching the body when your knee's not torn to shreds, your MCL's not torn to shreds, and you haven't gone, gone two hard rounds with high-volume striking, taking strikes and throwing strikes. Imagine you land. Imagine if he landed some of those bombs he landed to the head. Imagine those came to the body where Shane Burgos is coming forward and he can't roll from him and he can't block him and he can't get away from him. That fight won't go three rounds. But he didn't get to do it until he had no other option. And when you, when you do things out of desperation, it's more effective, but it also shows a lack of, a, a lack of intelligence. And it shows a lack of skill because you should have been aware enough to do these things. It's like if you do the things you you do, if you do things you have to do before you have to do them, you won't ever get into a bad spot. He waited until he ha- utterly had to switch something up before he switched something up. By that time, it was too late. He could have won that fight even if we started the second round with a body attack, but he didn't have the good sense to. So either he ignored his corner or they didn't see it. And if they didn't see it, that's a problem. And the fact that he didn't see it is even a bigger problem. Even Stipe figured it out against against Cormier, hey, I need to go to the body. Fight was over, won it. That's all Emmett had to do. And nobody, including himself, had the good sense enough to make that adjustment. So what about Shane Burgos then? Uh, What did we learn about him in this fight? Because he looked really good early in the fight, but it was almost like he was taking way too many shots. And yeah, you know, you talked about him rolling with some, which which was lessening the damage but I mean he's getting hit he was rolling on those punches like he was taking shots from someone who hits lighter than um, Josh Emmett was well and Burgos, that really okay, kind of, yeah. like that really stood out to me because he can't like you cannot take shots like that over an extended period of time we saw that even in this fight when he started getting staggered and, and dropped there were some points where he was even hurt more so on his feet, and you could tell Emmett was trying to get to him, but he couldn't. So had Emmett been healthy and not had his leg torn apart, he probably could have finished him in the second or, or, or third round. So what are your thoughts about the way Burgos was taking these shots, and how did you how did you break that down? Well, part of his leg being torn up is because he kept getting kicked in the leg and wasn't doing anything to offset that, i.e. countering. He, he's, missing, he's missing to the head on his counters to those kicks. He would have thrown to the chest of the body. He would have landed those, and he would have backed Burgos off. Burgos' thing is he's a very good striker. Technically, he has the skills to do a lot of different things in there. The problem is, like, Robbie Lawler used a lot of technique, feints, parries, hand fighting, came behind a jab to navigate offense, to limit the amount of offense somebody could throw, and to limit the amount of punishment he took as guys threw. And then he threw in the defensive awareness. Burgos instead uses a variety of strikes and he tries to use a lot of volume and aggression to make up for the crap. And I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a conscious choice that he's choosing to do this or that his camp encourages it or that he hasn't worked enough on these finer points that he can mix it in and more. But the problem is if you're going to, it's kind of the same problem Max Holloway does. If you're going to throw a lot of strikes with a lot of variety of strikes and high volume of strikes, and you're going to use aggression then it doesn't matter how good you are defensively, you are going to get countered, you are going to get chipped up. You can't move forward, no matter how crisp and sharp you are, move forward that much and think you're not going to get hit and think you're not going to take punishment and think you're not going to get tired. It's just impossible. I don't care how sharp you are. You don't get to do that unless you're putting guys out with one or two shots. And if you're a guy who throws volume and throws a wide variety of strikes, then guess what? You're not a killer puncher. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to throw volume. You throw... 
five to ten punches and the fight's over instead of having to throw 25 around just, just to keep a guy off you. Burgos, to me, and I'm not sure, once again, I don't know if it's a camp issue or I don't know if it's a personal preference, but the way they're fighting is guaranteeing that he's going to be an action fighter and people are going to want to see him because his fights are going to be him punishing somebody or him giving as good as he gets and eventually breaking someone's will or overwhelming somebody. But the fact of the matter is he, wa- he wants to challenge for a title. He wants to win a title. I don't know that his chin or his body are going to hold up for him so that when he gets that shot, that he, that he has an, a legitimate chance of winning. To me, the style he's using doesn't have a long, doesn't have a long career ahead of it. It's going to be like a streaking star. He'll hit on it. He'll get on a run. He'll be magnificent. But then once the cracks start to show, he's going to fall completely off the map unless he diversifies his game and places a higher priority on shot selection, on defense, and on and being more subtle in how he in how he closes distances. Right now is really obvious. It doesn't get punished as much because most guys aren't good enough strikers and they'll get defensive. They'll try to run. They'll try to reset. But against guys who are punchers and against the lead guys in the division who aren't going to be scared off by his volume and he doesn't hit hard enough to scare them off, those guys are going to meet that aggression. And they're either going to counter the shit out of him and beat him up or they're going to overwhelm him, overwhelm him and finish him. I haven't seen the defensive awareness that shows that if a guy ramps up the volume on him that he can get away from him. I haven't shown, I haven't seen the subtle, subtlety and technical awareness that he can get in and out of the pocket without taking a tremendous amount of abuse against guys who are comparable athletes and have a comparable level of striking. Josh Emmett is a pretty one, pretty, pretty shallow level striker, and he was hitting them with whatever he wanted to. I don't know what that is, if that was a Max Holloway or a uh, Volkanovski or somebody of that nature. Those guys who have a little bit more refinement to their skills, those guys who can match it, match Burgos's pace, in fact, exceeded because a- after five hard rounds, they're still going. Burgos was on his last leg in that last round. So while I think Burgos is truly elite and he's probably a fight or two away from the title fight, I don't know that he has a way to win it because his style seems tremendously flawed against elite-level skill or elite-level talent. I mean, Emmett almost got out, got him out of there, and Emmett, Emmett's basically just an athlete who knows how to fight. I don't know how well Burgos' style holds up against guys who've got good athleticism, good, phys- good athleticism, and have the skill and IQ to actually have technical answers to what he's doing. The throw a bunch of strikes in volume isn't going to work against Volkanovski. It will even work against this version of Max Holloway. I don't even know if it works as well against Brian Ortega, to be quite honest, or the Korean Zombie. Once you get past a certain level, the mistakes you make have a higher price to be paid when you make them. And I feel that against the elite guys, the things that he does wrong and the positions he puts himself in is going to result in losses and the kind of losses that change you as a fighter. And that is exactly where I want to segue from because when I watched him fight, it made me think of um, Dong Young Kim and that hellacious fight he had against Cub Swanson. He hasn't been the same since. I think he's been stopped in every loss he's had since then, two straight so far. And those fights change your career and they change your quality of life. So it's, it's painful for me to watch that. As much of an MMA fan as I am, it's painful for me to see that. Uh, and it's, it's, pay, it's painful for me to see that and not, not cringe. And I, I think that we're in a situation where it was very, it was, it was, we're going to wonder how much this damage did to him 
over the term of, of his career. Uh, for Emmett, Schwan, what do you do with him next? How do you move him forward in, in his career? He's going, he's going to be gone for an extended period of time. So when he comes back, what do you think is next for him? I don't know. I, I think the division is going to look a lot different by the time he gets back. I mean, a lot happens in a year and a half. And that's if everything goes perfectly and he recovers correctly and, and there's no hiccups. He'll be back in a year and a half. It could be longer. Um, you just got to see how he comes back from the surgery. And at his age, he can't afford to take he can't afford to take any shortcuts because another injury or another major injury in his career to me is essentially over. So I, I don't know what you do with him. I don't know how to place him. I don't know how to rank him. I mean, he's not even really a factor for the next year and a half. So it's we'll just have to wait and see where the division is. And um, he's going to have to he's going to be coming off a loss, and we're going to have to uh, kind of. Build him back up. The one thing I will say is I hope they don't try to jump the line and force him into force him in with another elite guy when he gets back. I mean, yeah, if you win, it's a great it's a great spark for your career and puts you right back in the title fight title picture. But if you lose and you lose badly, uh, that's still two losses in a row, and it's two and it's it'd be a fairly bad loss. So I'm hoping they move him appropriately and make sure all everything's 100 percent before they even attempt to consider fights or what he wants to do moving forward. Yeah, I think that that's what's best for um best for him. So I am I'm I'm on the same page when it comes to more time and uh like I'm always a fan of, of people taking more time after fights such as these. Uh Lauren Murphy. I wanted to talk about her briefly as well too. She was buried on the undercard, but she got an important win beating Roxanne Modafari convincingly. Do you think she could ever become a title title contender at 125 pounds, or is she almost slotted into that position out of necessity? I mean, I didn't think she was going to be Roxy. Roxy did not look well in that fight, and I'm not. I got to give credit to Lauren. Lauren put the pressure on her, used her physicality, and, and essentially just walked Roxy down. Roxy wasn't able to find her rhythm. Roxy wasn't able to create her space, and Roxy wasn't able to get the fight to the spot she wanted to fight to. She wanted to fight at. Uh, Lauren out-hustled her, out-fought her, and to a certain degree, outsmarted her. Um, I don't know that... I mean, at this point, the way Valentina keeps knocking people off, all you have to do is win a couple of fights, and you're going to be in a title title, t- title fight. I mean, Cynthia Calvillo is being considered as a potential title challenger, because if Valentina knocks the, beats JoJo, then I's already out of the picture, Chukagan's already been stomped. She's out of the picture. So, and Carmouche is no longer in the division. So she's out of the picture. So we just, we just go down the list. It's essentially what happened with Mighty Mouse was a champion. You didn't have to win a lot of fights. You win one. You win the right fight. You win one or two fights. You got a title fight because Mighty Mouse is just running through all the contenders. So essentially, if she can, um, if she sits and waits to see how that JoJo fight comes out, she's got as much of a she's got as much of a reason to call for a title fight. As Calvillo, if not more so, she she didn't beat the higher ranked fighter, but she beat two very good fighters back to back in KGB Lee and uh, Roxette, Roxy Modafari, who was coming off a two fight win streak herself. So, uh, Lauren Murphy has legitimate expectation to be in title talks, and I guess if she can force a fight with Cynthia Calvillo, whoever wins that is guaranteed to get the next title fight. But Lauren Murphy might not have to win another fight to get a title shot. To be honest, if we're if we're looking at records and momentum right now and the fact that Valentina is just killing everybody.
Yeah, I, re- I really wonder what they're going to do with that division long term. Like even I mean, they don't they don't like Lauren Murphy. We do know that they don't like her. I'm not sure they're big fans of Rocks and Nadia Furrier. They're not the the image and the style of person. Even though they are white women, they're not the women they 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 feel they can build off of. If you know yeah. what I'm saying. I totally. I mean, I say it all the time. I mean, right now the top five is Caitlin Chukagian, Cynthia Calvillo, uh, Joanne Calderwood, Lauren Murphy, and Jessica I are tied at four. Oddly enough, Jennifer Maya sitting at six, Roxanne Matafari is at seven, Vivian Ar- Arhulio, I think I said that right, is at eight, Andrea Lee, and then Macy Barber. So there really isn't any direction that they can go with that division right now. We'll see kind of what happens over the long term. Last thing I wanted to talk to you about was the Max Washkoff situation where, where he was fighting and um, basically he quit on his soul between the second and third round. Now, the controversy around this is that his coach, Robert Drysdale, undefeated MMA fighter, excellent ADCC competitor, was trying to wheel him back into the fight, talking to him, talking to him, talking to him over and over. Max told him to call the fight nine times, nine, before telling the ref himself and the fight was called. There's been a lot of back and forth, a lot of argument about the situation, about who was right and who was wrong. Or not necessarily who was right and who was wrong, but if Robert Drysdale was wrong in the situation. The Nevada State Athletic Commission is even looking into it as well. Uh, Drysdale has come out and he released a statement on social media saying that you know he stands by what he did because he was trying to push his fighter. You've coached in the past. I've coached in the past as well. Where do you stand on this situation? This wasn't a beating like we've seen in the past. This isn't a beating like Raquel Pennington took at um, when she fought Amanda Nunez. This isn't a beating like that. He was looking good in the first round, and he gassed out. He took this fight on five days' notice, and now it's looking like he may never get an opportunity to fight in the UFC again. What are your thoughts about this situation here, and who is right, for lack of a better term? Well, I under, it's kind of like I compare it to this. If you have a kid or a teenager and they are, there's a sport they're playing and I had to make them play the sport, the coach would say, don't have them out here. if They don't really want to be out here or they're not willing to sacrifice because all you're doing is hurting the other teammates. You're hurting. You're wasting my time. You're wasting their time. They're not committed to it. They're not giving their best. And that's in a sport. You know, you can get hurt in football, even basketball, sports that aren't really the, the contact level of a combat sport. And that's what they're. That's what they would say. I know he's a grown man, but a lot of the relationship between coaches and, and fighters, especially if if they really trust in you, it, it's almost like the trust you have in a parent or or mentor figure. And if somebody's telling you they don't want to fight or they don't have it anymore, and you push them out there, and, and when it's four, five, six times, you're telling them that. What if that person goes out and gets hurt severely? They told you they don't want to be there. They told you they don't have it anymore. So what if you send them out there and they just get totally wrecked? I mean, they basically told you they're mentally or emotionally checking out and you're sending them out there to fight. It's like somebody saying, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight. And you're like, no, you have to fight this guy right now in a, in a street fight. What do you think is going to happen? You don't really want to fight. You Either you're not feeling it, you're scared, you don't, something's wrong with you, but you send somebody out there to fight and they get, they get, it, and they get hurt. That's on you because you forced this situation. I get what Robert Drysdale is trying to say about, well, you know, you got to push through things and, and all that kind of nonsense. I, I guess I get it. 
But I think there's a difference between someone being tired and you see their mind starting to break or you see their confidence starting to shake and you build them back up like, no, you're not going to quit. Go get them, go get them. It's another thing when somebody's like, look, I'm done. I don't want it anymore. I'm done. Or, no, no, get back out there. I'm done. Get back out there. I'm done. I mean, around the third time, now you're arguing about somebody going out to face someone who is trying to punch them, kick them, knee them, it's strangle them. And they say they're done. If, if they're not mentally into it, how do you send them out there against a guy who's fully committed to harming them when they're not fully committed to harming that guy, much less protecting themselves? I get the fact that he was tired. His coach probably knew he was tired. He's probably trying to get him to push through it, knowing that he feel bad and he kick himself in the end. But the fact of the matter is we all make decisions. We all have to live with them. I don't know if it's right for a coach to take that decision out of that person's hands, you know, in that case. You know, it's not like he's in the middle of a fight. He's trying to fight. He's trying to get back and he's just outclassed. He's just saying he's done. He says he's done. Um, I think I think you have to respect that because anything that happens after that is 100% on you. And we know the MMA fighters don't get paid a lot of money. That person gets seriously injured or hurt. Coach ain't paying for it. And we're not necessarily, I'm st- still not sure the UFC is paying for it either. So, uh, well, it, yeah, if, if he gets hurt, well, it depends on how, well, you're right. It kind of depends on how that, how that looks at. Like he got paid $12,000. That was a show money for Saturday's fight. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, as a coach, you make the decision. You know the person, you've been there at the beginning, and I get all that nonsense. But the fact of the matter is, someone else told you they don't want to do something. And what other situation in life? If somebody says, no, I don't want to do this, and you push them into it, is that not going to be frowned on? I know the romantic aspect of fighting, but nobody's thinking about the real-life aspect. Uh, what if somebody is I mean, being gassed is one thing. At least you're engaged and you still want more. You can figure something out. But when you don't want anymore and you don't want to fight anymore, imagine if you went out there and the guy came forward and he just collapsed in a pile and covered up. How would he ever recover from that? There's so much to kind of break down from there. And I wonder, um, I wonder how this is going to play out long term. You know, he, like I said, he took this fight on five days' notice. Um, well, I don't, I don't. You know what? And I, I heard Dana White said about his manager. I heard about the five days' notice. I'm not a fighter, so I, I will say this again. I say this a million times. I'm not a fighter, so my perspective on this is going to be different. But guess what? I'm guessing his manager isn't a fighter. I'm guessing a lot of managers aren't fighters. Just like a lot of parents aren't athletes and they're, they're pushing their kids and all this stuff and whatever. And it's, it's, it's the same thing I tell my kid. My kid could complain about not getting an opportunity on a team or not getting enough chances or not get, getting put on this team or that team. And I'm like, do not have me arguing out here on your behalf hard, harder than you're working. Because sooner or later, your opportunity is going to come. And if you embarrass yourself, shit the bed, fall flat on your face, not only did you make yourself look bad because you drew all this attention to yourself, you make everybody connected who was fighting those battles for you look bad. If it's true what, his, what Dana White was saying, how his manager was hunting this guy down, and put, that's what fighters say, push me, push me. You need a manager who can push me, who can make things happen, who can give you the opportunities. So your manager pushed. He kept talking about you, talking about you, talking about you. He can be this guy, he can be that guy, he can be this guy, he can be that guy. You got the fight. Short notice, hey, I don't care about short notice. You're a professional. That's your job to be ready. I'm sorry if it's tough. Tough all over. That's your job to be ready. He did his job. He got you the opportunity, and then you got the opportunity, and you folded. Am I judging him for folding? No. That's within his right. I have no problem with someone quitting. It's what you choose to do. You have to live with it. But you, I guarantee you, he wanted his management, and he wanted his team to believe in him enough to get him the opportunity. They did, and he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. 
So now, as far as his opportunity moving forward with the UFC, it may no longer exist because he quit in a very public way. It's not like he, he just stopped fighting. He actually said, I'm done. And he didn't say I'm done once. He said, I'm done like nine times. There's no, there's no miscommunication. And for all the people who aren't fighters who put into him to get in that opportunity, that's going to be hard for them to swallow. Yeah, they're not fighters, but they fought for you to get in that opportunity. You got the opportunity you wanted, and you didn't perform. And nobody can. There's no way to spin that. No way to spin that. It's just, it's just the facts. True, there, sir. I'm not going to disagree with you too much on that front. And let's turn to another front. Let's talk about the fights we have this weekend at UFC Vegas Four. Now, oh wait, wait, wait. wait before, we go, before we go, before we go, I just need to say one more thing. Um, that fight, Gillian Robertson, that was excellent performance. She showed beautiful grappling, beautiful control, nice understanding of the ebbs and flows of fights and where to pick her spots to not just win a positional battle, but to actually win in a finishing manner. Um, I was very impressed with it. The only thing that kind of downplayed her performance was the fact that it was Courtney Casey. And as much as Courtney Casey is, a, is proven and she's tough and she's experienced, it seems like she's hit her ceiling. She keeps losing in similar ways. She keeps getting in similar spots. And for the first time in a long time, she's actually paid for it in a submission loss. But it was a really bad showing by her on top of a, more than a few bad showings in the UFC. The divisions are thin, so I think she'll still have a job. But you have to start wondering where she's no longer considered a legitimate contender at any level. Because she used to only lose to a certain caliber person. Now she seems to be losing to just whoever can, whoever, whoever, whoever can come with a consistent and fairly um, straightforward game plan. I mean, the store, the book's out on her. I don't feel like she's improved at all. And, and I really don't know what they do with her except use her as a, a journeyman or stepping stone type person who might occasionally get a win over a prospect. That loss was one of the worst losses she's had. And, and it shows like a complete lack of awareness of where mixed martial arts are and where she needs to be to consistently, um, to consistently perform and stay at a contender level. And one more thing. Congratulations to Tisha Torres. Uh, she used the veteran game on the rookie. The rookie fought a dumb fight. The rookie hadn't improved in about a year and a half. I know because I scouted her for another opponent for that evicted tournament. She hasn't improved. She didn't play to her strengths. She gave Tisha Torres the fight she wanted. And Tisha Torres, like the veteran she is, took Man, full advantage of it. And I Van Buren had nothing for her. She engaged in a long-range, volume-striking fight with Tisha Torres. It's like her camp never saw a video of Tisha fight in their entire lives. It, it was the worst game plan I've ever seen and the worst execution of a game plan. Van Buren's not even a good enough striker to win that. I mean, she hits harder, but she's not a good enough striker defensive or offensively. And she gave Tisha, she gave Torres a fight she wanted. She did not even try to push for the fight to be on the terms that she wanted the way she should have. She basically let Torres have the spacing, the timing, and the activity Torres wanted, and Torres punished her to every single turn. It was a good loss. Because she didn't get really punished, like as far as physically hurt. Torres, Tisha isn't that kind of a hitter. She's not a punishing fighter, but it was a bad loss. And the fact she showed no awareness that she's losing the fight. And she showed no ability to use different setups or transition through ranges to get to the spot she needed to to showcase her advantages, which is her physical stride, her size, her strength, and her power. She like she just fought a really stupid fight. And she deserved that loss. And I hope she goes back to the drawing board and really looks at what she's doing and makes some adjustments. Because if she's going to just fight like that and give people the fight she wants, there's a lot of people in that division who are going to wipe the floor with her. I mean, uh, you know, it is just a bad loss. Yeah, it, it was just... a really bad loss. It, um, and like, 
Tisha Torres looked fantastic, but it was a really bad loss. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. And she's a talented fighter, but it's like I told the people who were I scouted for before. She's got a very shallow skill set. She's more of an athlete than a technical fighter. She can physically dominate you if you let her get the spot. She can beat you up on the feet if you let her get going. But if you interrupt what she's doing, you counter her, you put some volume on her, and you can move your feet, she's not a problem. And she fought Tisha Torres at range. Tisha Torres moved her feet, countered her, and used volume. And what did we see? Like essentially a a three-round ass whip. It wasn't even close. 10 to 27-30, 30-27. As far as actual effectiveness, it wasn't that close. So... I'm not going to dive in too much in, into that. You pretty much laid it all out. Let's talk about UFC Vegas 4. Now, I looked at this card, and I was actually kind of surprised because, again, this is one of this card is probably worse than the one that Jessica I and Cynthia Calvillo headlined on paper. But, again, we know how these fight cards usually play out. They usually play out where it's shenanigans and foolishness up and down the card. So let's just talk about the main event first, and we're going to go from there. We have Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker fighting in what I will say is a contender to take away the to take the title of the most violent fight of 2020. And right now, that, that fight is Justin Gaethje versus Tony Ferguson. Shane Burgos versus Josh Emmett is number two. This fight has the opportunity to take um, that position. Poirier and Hooker are fighting at a time where the lightweight division is at a standstill, per se. Not really, not really. I know, you know what? Take that back. It's not at a standstill. Justin Gaethje and Khabib Nurmagomedov are supposed to fight in September. Conor McGregor is clearly the, the next guy in, in line, um, and you know, the UFC is going to do whatever they can to get him in that position. Hooker Poirier, they have value as a potential opponent to any of those individuals. Except for Poirier, obviously, because he's already lost to uh, Khabib. Uh, and I don't know if people are really clamoring for him to rematch Justin. I would like to see him rematch Connor, though. So looking at this fight here and looking at this main event, who has the most to win between Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker? Um, Dan Hooker. If Poirier wins... Um, I, don't know that, I don't know that that vaults him back into title contention because I don't consider Dan Hooker to be a title contender. I think Dan Hooker is a, he's a, he's a good athlete. He's a good technical fighter, but albeit limited in both aspects of it. His biggest, his biggest, um, his biggest advantage is the fact that he's super durable and has heart and he has an amazing camp and corner behind him that, that comes up with game plans that allows him to maximize his physical tools and navigate the limitations he has physically and technically. But he's not a great striker. He's not a great grappler. He's not a great puncher. He's not a great kicker as far as power and damage done. He's a pretty steady guy who's feasted on beating up other pretty steady or tragically flawed guys. Beating up Ross Pearson, who's a, at this point, who at that point was shopworn and, and more of a boxer who does MMA than an overall MMA fighter. Beating up Jim Miller, who's still a tough, gritty season fighter, but a guy who's not a great athlete, not a big, powerful puncher. And even though he's a good wrestler, he's not some sort of dynamic, just completely dominate you and, and, and punish you type wrestler. James Vick, as good as Vick's been, I think he beat Vick when Vick was on a losing streak. And, and Vick's just not that good himself. He's beat a bunch of second-tier light, lightweights. 
the win over Ally Quinta. You already know my thoughts on Ally Quinta. Tough guy, good wrestler, um, active, has a good general skill set, but in my opinion, was never never elite. No offense to him. You know, um, being at Paul Felder, another guy who who's, would be in that mid tier of light lightweights as far as who he's beaten and the and the physical skills and technical skills he's shown as a fighter. When he's faced better talent, whether it's at 45 or at 55, he's tended to lose. And I can't get past that. Dustin Poirier is actually one of the better talents. He's been one of the better talents in two weight divisions. So if Hooker beats him, that's an upset. That makes Hooker a a contender. That makes people start thinking of him differently because most people don't think he can beat Poirier. Poirier beats Hooker. That's what everybody expects. Hooker, based on what he's shown, isn't on Poirier's level, not as, not, not as an athlete, not as a technical fighter, not in regards to who he's beaten. He hasn't beaten anybody on uh, Poirier's level as far as, as far as his fight record. Poirier's beaten guys as good or better than Hooker. So Poirier benefits nothing from a win, except he won, and if he looks good, nobody's going to think that he beats Khabib out of the, out of the blue. And if, if Justin somehow finds a way to beat Khabib, people are going to doubt that he can beat Justin at this point. He just already has a win over him that might allow him to springboard into a title into a into a rematch for the title but justin's changed so much as a fighter or justin's evolved as people say it so much as a fighter that i don't know that anybody feels super secure in picking poirier at this point either so the biggest person has something to win is hooker because that would mean he outperformed his skill set outperformed his athleticism and beat the best opponent he's ever faced in the entirety of his career he, he's the only guy who wins in this poirier a win for poirier is eh. Yeah, big deal. It's like beating Courtney Casey. It's good. Doesn't mean much in the, in the grand scheme of things, but hey, a win's better than a loss. A win from Hooker, it essentially changes his whole life. Changes his whole life and how he's viewed by the uh, by the mixed mixed martial arts community. Now, looking at these two individuals here on Saturday. Who do you think has a better opportunity of actually becoming a UFC champion? Yes, Dustin Khabib, uh, excuse me, Dustin Poirier has held an interim title, but he has not been the lineal actual champion, undisputed champion. Who out of these two guys had the best opportunity of actually gaining that title? I, I would still say Poirier. Poirier shown um, he, he's he's won against elite guys, uh, Eddie Alvarez, Justin Gaethje, to name a few. Um, I mean, the Anthony Pettis would be the, one of the least impressive wins on his resume right now, and that win over Anthony Pettis is might be better than anything that uh, that Daniel Hooker's done for the entirety of his career. Uh, Poirier is closer. Poirier's an elite lightweight. He's a proven elite lightweight, so he, he's much closer. He it's easier to consider him such. Dan Hooker hasn't shown me enough to say that he's elite. He may be. He may have had, he may have me fooled. He may have everybody fooled, and he may in fact be an elite lightweight. His resume does not say he's an elite lightweight. His wins don't say he's the right elite lightweight. His losses don't say he's an elite lightweight. So, if anybody has a chance of getting to it, it's Poirier. He's the closest to it as far as ranking. He's the closest to it as far as resume. He's the closest to it as far as physical skills and technical skills. Um, Hooker would need a lot of things to happen for him to get a title shot. First of all, beating. Dustin Poirier, and even if he lost to Dustin Poirier, you know how many people would have to get injured before they'd put Daniel Hook, Dan Hooker into a title fight? A, a whole lot of them. 
a whole lot of things would have to go wrong before Daniel Hooker gets a title fight against. Uh, it'd be like Al Iaquinta, where they went through three or four other people, and then Al was gifted that title shot. That's what it would take for Dan Hooker to get a title shot based on what he's shown um, in the cage. You there, Raphael? Yep, I am, but I was accidentally talking on mute. When I think about Dustin Poirier, I struggle because I don't know what his legacy is going to be when this is all said and done. Like, what? Where is he going to be at the end of this? You know, he's going to be with Daniel Cormier before he won his title. He's going to be the second best fighter in two weight classes. I mean, essentially, he dominated featherweight. He dominated lightweight, or was very effective in it, went to featherweight, was like top two, top three in the division, and then he came back to lightweight, and he's essentially been a top two or top three guy in the division. He's never been Did able to beat... Did he ever fight Max Holloway? Uh, no, he got beat by uh, Conor... Max wasn't the champion when he was down there. He got knocked out by Conor McGregor, and Conor like, got a title fight two fights after that. That's right, that's right. And he that's was close right. to another one, but I think he got submitted by the Korean Zombie, if I'm correct. Yeah, I remember that one. That one was before the Connor fight. Yeah, so, I mean, he was close to a title fight then, lost, was back on his way up for a title fight, and lost again. So he's always been close, but never been able to close a deal. He's been he in the league. He lost in two as well. I forgot about that one. He, he's only lost to the best. He's competed with the best and beat some of the best, but he's never been able to really get that signature win that gets him a legitimate title shot and gets him a legitimate title belt, and that's in two weight classes. But he's been world class in both of them. I remember when he beat Josh Grisby, uh, Josh Grisby, and he was supposed to be the next big thing, and he just basically smoked them. And that was and in Josh, 2011. Yeah, he's. I mean, Poirier's been around for a while. Poirier, in my opinion, didn't have that much longer in, in, in mixed martial arts either. At a certain point, you start to slow down. At a certain point, the skill sets catch up, the physical tools decline enough where guys start being able to do things they wouldn't normally do against you. And, and get to certain spots they would normally do be able to get to against you. So I, I don't know that Poirier is going to be elite for the next three to five years. But as it's of crazy. right now, he's still, he's still considered so. I want someone, someone really needs to dive into some studies about fighter, like MMA athletes and what their, what their performance looks like compared to other fighters. Because, you know, we're talking about Dustin Poirier as if he's an old man on his way out to sport. Dude's just 31 years old. Like, think about what LeBron James was doing at 31. Think about what Vince Carter was doing at 31. If it, the trajectory of MMA competitors, I feel like their body is akin to what we see in NFL running backs, where you'll see a running back have a solid two, three years, and then they just fall off the face of the earth. And they're a backup somewhere, or they're out of the league um, entirely. I think their average length of time for a running back in the NFL is six years or something like that. Something, something ridiculous because they put their body through so much in a short period of time. I really wonder what what age is it for fighters when they fall off a cliff because we just saw Marion Renault compete on Saturday. She's 42 years old. So how is it so different for women than it is for men because we see the lighter weight men, they tend to start slowing down it seems like around 33. It seems like 
Well, well, the different the difference is are, are still doing their, are, are, are are still doing their thing. It's a pool of talent. Marion Renault is at, at bantamweight and women. That's a thin division, so she can hang around because she's still one of the best five athletes in the division. Her and Holly Holm are the oldest two people in there. I think Manny Nunes is another old person in the division, and they're three of the best athletes in the division. The division is thin. It doesn't have a lot of great athletes. It doesn't have a lot of great technical fighters. So someone like Marion Renault can really stay generally in the mix just based off her athleticism and, and a fairly fairly decent set of skills. Uh, in lightweight, you've got a lot of the best athletes in lightweight. The guys in the top 15 are great athletes. Not only are they great athletes, they've all fought a lot, and they fought elite guys because the division is so deep. You could fight outside of the UFC and face elite talent in lightweight. You could fight in Risen and face elite talent in lightweight. There's so much talent over there that anytime you lose a step or two, it becomes very apparent because all the guys in there have a certain amount of athleticism. And even if the guys start losing it, they still got world-class experience. It's the depth of the division. I don't even necessarily think the guys have to fall off at a certain age, but when you've been through a certain amount of wars, you've had a certain amount of fights, you maintain a certain kind of activity, that, that has a price. And unlike LeBron James and guys like him, I don't know that anybody in MMA has a million dollars, two million dollars to put into their body, to getting the right foods, to oxygenating their blood cells and taking certain treatments and getting certain massages to make sure that their body is in top working condition. These guys don't make that kind of money. They, they, don't, they don't make this kind of money and they don't generate that kind of money. So they don't have people investing in them to make sure that their, their skill set is flawless, make sure the way they're being used maximizes their physical tools and their mental tools and make sure they're getting the right recovery and they're not pushing too hard. Yeah, by the time, by the time Daniel Poirier learned these lessons, he had already been in, he had already been fighting for what, seven, eight years? So that's seven, eight years of punishment before he finally learned about taking care of himself and being smarter in how he prepares. I mean, you, you can't take those seven, eight years back. LeBron James has been investing in his body for how long? Because he's he's always been valued as a moneymaker and a guy who could you could diversify your portfolio off and, and extend your your um your empire with. So he's always had that value, he's always had that potential, and he's acted accordingly. Justin Poirier didn't really get anywhere near that until seven or eight years into his 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 standing as a fighter, in which case his training methods changed, his approach to the game changed. But that's seven, eight years in. And that's with him not being the best athlete and not having invested parties taking care of him and making sure he's on point. It's just a little bit different. It's hard it's it's similar, but it's a little bit different because of the nature of the, the money involved in these in these uh, different sports. Yeah, there's there's definitely some differences between the two and the way it plays out. Let's uh, switch over to some listener questions, and the first question we have is in reference to um, the UFC cut man. I know you probably saw this, but uh, the cut man, Dan House, I think is his name, appeared on camera with insignias to a conspiracy theorist theory group that is linked to um, alt-right white nationalist theories. It was actually recently categorized as a potential terror, domestic terrorism threat. And this guy had insignias of the organization, I can't really pronounce the name, it's Q-A-N-O-N, Quanon or something like that. And he had their insignias on his sleeve. I think the other was on his chest. And it was on television. I remember seeing it and thinking to myself, what is that? But not really paying it too much mind. 
So this is where we are now. Um, I've been writing about this a lot and reading about this a lot for the past couple of years where there is a strong push of alt-right white nationalist nar- narratives that are seeping into MMA more and more. There was a woman on Bellator's um, roster who had to basically clear her, her Instagram because she had um, sympathetic posts about Hitler on her um, Instagram. She fought for an organization that is a white nationalist clothing line. Um, when she was in Russia, you know, you had fighters who have been... What's his name? I can't think of the one guy who was cut from the UFC because he had nationalist tattoos on and he saw them during his uh, weigh-ins. Um, Kareem Zidane over at Bloody Elbow, he's, he's wrote about multiple um, white nationalist organizations that are teaching people MMA to prepare for a race war. There's a gym right here close to me in Maryland that trains at or competes at in jiu-jitsu tournaments. They are a white nationalist group as well. And I know that because um, one of my training partners is a police officer who investigated groups such as that. And he called them out when we saw them at a tournament. Um, There was a recent social media post uh, before COVID-19 hit where a tournament official had to tell individuals from a gym that was there competing to take off their t-shirts because they had Nazi insignia on them. I mean, the list is growing almost on a weekly basis where we see these hatred or these conversations around hatred being seeped in or being more and more uh, prevalent within MMA and martial arts. Uh, This same organization somehow they had a flag that appeared on the top of the Jackson gym in Albuquerque. So you look at all this one and you see the UFC claiming that they're going to investigate this uh, situation. Um, What are your thoughts? I'm going to let you share your thoughts first before I share mine. I I don't know a thing. I, I can't imagine them really investigating it because I don't, I mean, past a certain point, because I don't think they want, want to get to the bottom of what it could possibly be. I mean, there, there's always been an underlying theme that a lot of mixed martial arts fans are either indirectly, if not outright racist, and wish harm on non-white fans and non-white fighters. And something like this, especially in a time such as this, is just not the kind of problems the UFC need, needs to uh needs right now. I mean, it'd be good if they found it out and actually made some obvious changes and did some research. And if guys were connected to this, cut people out of it. But I don't I don't know that the UFC has that kind of commitment to the process. I don't know if they want to spend that kind of money. I don't know if they want to really connect themselves or show how far the, down the rabbit hole this goes. I mean, that could be problematic for them because then it has to be a lot of reform. It has to be a lot of changes. You have to start vetting a lot of fighters past the point that I think the UFC is comfortable with. They don't want to deal with political issues, not really. Not in their fights. I mean, that's why it's another reason they're independent contractors so they can, his views do not reflect the views of the company. He's an independent contractor. He's not my employee. I just have him on assignment. It allows them to stand at arm's length. I I don't really think they want to get too far into this because I think if they really did Let's just say ESPN and all the other channels would have a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about right now. This is just, this is the worst time this kind of stuff can come up, and it's not going to get any better. 
But I think the UFC is the main thing is to try to pretend like it's not as big an issue as it is and that we are taking the steps to address it. And they'll take some, maybe some steps for show, maybe some shallow steps. I know they're willing to invest millions and millions into really getting to the bottom of this. So one thing stood out to me in looking at all this. The only way I see them ever actually looking into this and making a statement and change is if organizations start pulling their money. That's the only thing that is ever going to get their attention. If someone, if someone was to look at Mike Perry making videos of him saying nigga this and nigga that, and, and a sponsor was like, nope, we're pulling our money, that is the only way the UFC will st- put a stop to some of this foolishness. And until that happens, but it won't, until that happens, uh, we're gonna, this isn't going to change in MMA. I mean, look at their sponsors. Like Their sponsor base is organizations that have right-leaning narratives to begin with, Black Rifle Coffee, for uh, a- a- example. So that isn't going to happen. However, that's the only way that I could see the UFC ever making a, a change in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, I just don't think it's possible. I mean, they, like I said, it's like it's almost like having when people have racist family members. You might know it's wrong. You might not even support it or really be down with it, but you're not going to speak up against it because you're, you know, like, oh, that's not really my thing. I'm not into politics. I don't really deal with that part of my family. I don't deal with these people at work. That's your way of maintaining some distance from it. And I get it because it's very hard to make these kind of stands because of the financial, emotional, and personal discomfort it's going to cause in your circles. And it's going to cost you some money. And it's it's putting your own privilege and benefits to the side to help others get privilege and benefits. That's why I always say people with privilege who speak out, I have a lot of, I have a lot of admiration for them. They, they, they're already winning. They're already in the lead and they're stepping back to, to, to make it more competitive to help you because they feel that's right. Somebody who's losing, I'm not, I'm not impressed by anything they do. If people out here trying to kill you, of course you're going to riot. If you can't get an opportunity to feed yourself, of course you're going to do whatever it takes to get things to be equal. You're losing. You have to do something to make something happen. The people who are winning don't have to do anything because in, in, in stepping back to help somebody, you're putting yourself in jeopardy because any, any wrong word, any wrong comment, any wrong reaction, now you're on an island. The people who are behind don't want you. The people who are ahead don't want you. Most people aren't willing to take that risk, and the UFC as a whole isn't. It's run by people who I would think fall on, maybe not the alt-right, but fall on that side of the beliefs generally, maybe not specifically to people they know, but overall as a whole, I think they fall on that line. So for them to go out there, it's not just attacking business partners, it's attacking friends. Because when you do big business, anybody who's done business knows you have to get to know people, you have to be around people, you have to interact with them past a certain point of just strictly business. That's how the big business gets done. People don't know, people who've never done that don't understand that. A lot of it's communication and developing personal relationships. So for you to attack them means, or you to, or you to pull money or you to take a stand, that means you're attacking someone you know, somebody you've had dinner with, somebody you've probably met their family, somebody who's helped you make money, you help them make money. It becomes personal. And some people aren't willing to burn personal bridges, even if, even if it's, something's wrong, even if something is inherently damaging to other people, because they'll say, well, that's just business. I don't do this. I don't believe these things. I just do business with these people. They think it's different. And it's it's really not. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a situation that is going to be swept under the rug, just like everything else. And let's also move on to our second question. Oh, 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 one more thing, one more thing before we get, just real quick. I had this comment on, on Twitter. I tell people, I, and I'm not saying this applies to everybody who's alt-right or who's racist or prejudiced, whatever, but just as a person, as a, as a minority young man, I tell a lot of guys and people who have sons, you should probably teach them how to defend themselves, like really know how to, because a lot of people who believe these things and feel this way about people like you and people like me, they actually know how to fight, fight. Like they train, they're grappling, they're kickboxing, they're learning these things. And I know this isn't MMA related, but just to say, there's people out there who are like, you know, I'm not going to tolerate this. And I'm like, that dude would kill you. That dude would literally physically kill you. Not a, doesn't need a weapon. Like some people are preparing for certain things and other people aren't. And I'm all for standing up and making your stand and making your point. But there comes a point when you make your stand and you make your point that things may go another direction and you have to be prepared to handle that. And I've known people who are in these groups. I've known people who've dated people in these groups or just know people in these groups or related to people in these groups. And I know how some of them think and I know how some of them prepare for situations. And a lot of guys on our end are not prepared for, for that kind of confrontation. They're just not. And I tell everybody who's minority in this in this country you should probably learn how to do things to defend yourself and protect yourself and take care of yourself just in case you get in that circumstance because we already have seen that a lot of authorities are not on your side and now you got people who are essentially trained thugs out there and they have the same problem with you as these other people have you so you might just want to make sure you can take care of that circumstance if it comes to that in those situations i mean like you said you saw these guys at grappling tournaments at fighting tournaments their their hatred doesn't end just at a tournament it's a 24 7 thing so there's people who are just regular people who don't know anything who might come across this person and really get hurt because they have no idea what to do sorry to throw that in just something no, i think no, about no, no you're all good you're all good you're all good um last question i wanted to ask before we close out today's show is we have 11 ufc events in the next 10 weeks out of those 11 events what main event are you looking forward to the most um uh, I'm trying to think. What event am I looking to the most? I guess maybe right off the bat I'd say um just just because of the context of it and possibly the ending of the careers, I, I might say uh I might say uh DC versus Stipe. I don't think that's the best fight out of them all, but being that We've gotten hints from both fighters that maybe they're a fight or two away. I think DC might hang around for Jones if he could, but I think they're maybe a fight or two away from ending their careers. Um, something historical like that, which would be two of the best heavyweights in the UFC's history, and then maybe two of the best heavyweights in mixed martial arts history, um, possibly retiring and, and fighting a trilogy against each other, that carries a certain amount of cachet to me. It kind of reminds you of those old days when the heavyweights were the best in boxing. So you have two guys who were clearly established, clearly clearly decorated who are the best in their division go, going for one last one last fight that kind of uh, strikes a nerve with me and I, I think I would look forward to that one for those historical purposes because that would be like we're talking about best UFC heavyweight of all time no worse than maybe number two number three heavyweight of all time maybe number one that's a big thing no other fight the UFC has coming up has those kind of stakes has those kind of historical stakes moving forward so for me the fight that I'm looking at is the Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Burns fight. 
And the reason why I'm picking that one is because I wonder if Burns is coming along at a time that surprises everyone. I wonder if he is coming around at a time like Rafael Dos Anjos did on Anthony Pettis. Everyone thought Anthony Pettis was going to be the champion for in a super extended period of time. They thought he was a world world beater that could do no wrong at that time. Rafael Dos Anjos came and dispatched him with the perfect mix of grappling and striking. I wonder if we're going to see the same thing with Kamaru Usman. Usman's a different type of fighter, different skill set, um, totally different challenge than Anthony Pettis different was. Different point of career. Different point of his career as well, too. And But this, a win for Burns would be just as shocking, for lack of a better term, as a win was, as that win was for Dos Anjos back at lightweight. Yeah, I, I'd have to say if he, if he beat Usman, it'd be something that came out of left field. I mean, to think of how many things had to happen for him to get this opportunity, you know, and uh, if he dom- he dominated um, he dominated Woodley, and if he comes back and dominates Usman, I mean that that's an impressive that's an that's quite the impressive impressive uh two fight win streak. I mean I know he's on a further one, but that's over two guys who one guy was was long was a fairly long reigning champion. This other guy basically cleaned out the division before he got his title fight. So for him to beat those two guys back to back would be it wouldn't be impossible, but it'd, it'd be impressive. You, you'd have to take note of it, and and that would I think that could submit him as a potential star, at least in Brazil, possibly. Mm-hmm. Definitely in Brazil. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that fight. But with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and uh, close out this show. So I want you to let everybody know what you're talking about, what you're working on. I should have some articles. If not, out. I'm sending them in this week. If not, uh, they should be. If they're not out this week, they should be out by next week. And it was just, I'm just, like I said, I'll be highlighting some things that camps do that don't prepare their fighters very well, or some things that camps do that uh, kind of lim- limit their fighter's success. You don't understand the fighter you have. Your fight, no matter how good your fighter is, they're going hit, to hit their head in that ceiling and not progress. If you don't understand certain things or prepare your fighter a certain way, when the opportunity comes, they're not going to be ready for it. So just discuss some of those finer points that, that maybe people don't know because they don't deal with camps. And I do. So I'm just kind of give a little peek behind the curtain. Good stuff, man. I'm working on a piece about um, whether or... Excuse me, I'm not working on, on any piece. Excuse me, I'm just talking here. I I may have some news next week. We'll see. Um, I'll keep you abreast of that. But as always, I'm covering majority professional wrestling and some um, MMA content as well. So uh, keep an eye out on that. And yeah, that's all I got for now. Well, thanks for having me on the show as always. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, like I said, we're always doing our best to make sure you have the best best content possible and the most honest opinions we have over topics that not, not, not everybody feels comfortable discussing. We kind of go places some people can't because of the sponsorships or just don't want to because of their position in, in the world, and that, that's all fine. That, that's what we do, and we take joy and pride in being able to do those things. Very true, sir. And we'll be back next week. Everyone, stay safe.